0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, May the 2nd, 2023. Last week, uh, I was in Washington, D.C., recording a number of shows for my How to Fix Democracy show. Uh, we are focusing this year, our fifth season, on a 100 years of American democracy, and I was in DC doing interviews mostly about America in the 1930s and during the Second World War, focusing, of course, on FDR, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, but we also did a show uh, featuring a woman, a scholar called Alida Black, who's an authority on Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, She wrote her biography, Casting Her Own Shadow, Uh, and she's also the editor of a couple of really interesting and important books, bringing together the political writings of Eleanor Roosevelt. One, Courage in a Dangerous World, uh, and the other, the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, is a remarkable woman in many ways, the moral conscience of FDR and uh, perhaps the most remarkable woman uh, in American history, certainly the most remarkable presidential wife. We are focusing on Eleanor Roosevelt today, uh, a narrower chapter in her life, a new book out today, The First Lady of World War II. Eleanor Roosevelt's daring journey to the front lines and back. It's about Eleanor Roosevelt's 1943 uh, trip to Australia and the Pacific. Uh, and the author of the book is Shannon McKenna Schmidt, who is joining us from Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, Shannon, congratulations on the new book. You must be thrilled.
1: Thank you. I am indeed thrilled. And I am happy to be here chatting with you on its actual pub day, which is today.
0: So, Shannon, before we get to the trip, tell me what your fascination is with Eleanor. She's uh, clearly uh, an inspirational figure for several generations of Americans, particularly American women. Have you always been inspired by her?
1: I have always been inspired by her. Um, And I actually grew up in the Hudson Valley, which is also home of of the Roosevelt's, of, of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. So I was always aware of Eleanor I voraciously read biographies of, you know, famous female figures um, in history when I was younger, um, Amelia Earhart, Eleanor Roosevelt, Marie Curie. Um, So I've always been an admirer of Eleanor Roosevelt. And where I found this, this common ground elsewhere with her for the book was this love of travel, Um, and I was actually reading a collection of her columns called My Day, a syndicated newspaper column that she did. And I came across a mention that she had visited Australia and during a tour of the Pacific Theater in 1943. And my interest was immediately piqued because I had recently been to Australia and New Zealand. And it was really that hook and that, you know, commonality over travel because she was also a big traveler. And that's really how the book came to be.
0: For Eleanor Roosevelt as a traveler, do you think, in part, it might be in a a form of escape, escape from her husband? It wasn't a particularly happy marriage.
1: It wasn't. And, you know, I I think she loved travel for a lot of reasons. And, you know, certainly um, going along with what you said, I mean, it, it meant independence to her. And she certainly did achieve an independence within her marriage. Um, and, and became her own person. And yes, travel was certainly um, uh, an expression of freedom and independence for her. It was also a way that she gathered information. You know, she she ceaselessly crisscrossed the country. I mean, she she wasn't just doing it to go on pleasure jaunts. Usually, it was to gather information to inspect New Deal initiatives, and she would co- report this information back to the president and his advisors.
0: Uh, Pearl Harbor, of course, perhaps the most infamous day in American history um, occurred in December 1941 on December 7th. What was Eleanor's response Um, given her, her progressive politics? I mean, obviously, she was horrified by the event, but was she also fearful of some of the consequences, not just of war, but perhaps of racial hatred?
1: Yes, I mean, she called herself a realistic pacifist. And she, in the in the years leading up to World War II, I mean, she was out there um, denouncing Hitler. Um, in fact, you know, the Nazis were aware of this. They they threatened her by name. So she very much wanted to avert war. But at some point, it became clear that the United States was going to have to defend itself. And, you know, once that happened, you know, she, she was on board with that. And, and I, I believe that her... When you say
0: she was on board... Um... Before Pearl Harbor, was she in the war camp or was she ambivalent or did she sidestep an incredibly complicated, morally tricky issue?
1: Um, She was, you know, as as FDR did, the nation was was preparing for war um, even before the attack on Pearl Harbor happened. And she was very much a part of this um, preparation as part of um, a deterrent perhaps. Um, certainly as part of the nation's defense. And she actually was the first presidential spouse to hold a government appointment when she uh, worked for the office of civilian defense, which was a new federal agency created in um, earlier in 1941 to help the nation uh, prepare across the nation. So in communities across the country, it would be, you know, they'd prepare for, you know, air raid drills and they would get fire brigades. So she, she was a part of this, but she was only a part of it for a short time because the, she worked unpaid, but the public outcry, or not, not the public outcry, but the press and Congress especially was so great that she had to relinquish this position. And she was constantly looking for ways that she could contribute to the war effort. And she was very despondent um, when she had to step down from, from this position.
0: How much did she invent the office of presidential wife? Um... Lou Hoover, for example, the wife of Herbert Hoover, uh, FDR's predecessor, was also a remarkable woman. But most people have never even heard of her. What did Eleanor do to reinvent or perhaps even revolutionize the office of presidential wife?
1: Well, traditionally, you know, when Eleanor, um, you know, she, she was pleased for Franklin when he won the nomination in 1932.
0: She That doesn't bought- sound very enthusiastic pleased
1: <laughs> well you not know not even thrilled no well, just please she, she was thrilled for him and for the country but for not herself, for
0: herself for her for her family no, i'm for, guessing
1: for herself she was devastated because she at this but when she entered the white House as first lady she had her own life she had her own career um she her was own
0: friends it, perhaps even her own lover's
1: Perhaps. Yeah. And um, so she was an educator, she was an author, she was a speaker, she was a political activist. And she was afraid that her identity was going to be absorbed into this customary role of first lady. And Lou Hoover is actually really interesting because before becoming first lady, she was out there, she traveled, she gave speeches. But once she entered the White House, she, for the most part, gave up um, a public life. And that's what was expected of First Ladies. They were supposed to stay in the White House and oversee social functions. But that was well, not going to be Although there
0: to be I don't know, fair to Lou. I mean, this was a Hoover's presidency was a particularly dark period in American history. It wasn't the time to have big parties or go traveling, given the Great Depression.
1: Sure. Fair enough. And like I said, but Eleanor Roosevelt gets to the White House and she's not looking to do parties or, or travel. Like I said before, she didn't travel just for the thrill of it. Um, what she decided that she could best help FDR by being his eyes and ears and keeping him in touch um, with public opinion, which she said is the moving force in a democracy. And so that's really what she's out there doing. She logged an astounding, she averaged an astounding 40,000 miles on the road each year just crisscrossing the country, like um, I said earlier, you know, everywhere from going in down into a coal mine to, you know, inspect working conditions to, you know, schools and factories. And she's constantly on the go. She's constantly always looking for ways that she can help make life better for people.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing story. One of the other people I interviewed last week in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, for our How to Fix Democracy show was Paul... Uh, Sparrow, he used to be in charge of the presidential library, the FDR presidential library. He's writing a book now about FDR during the war. He again, we, we talk specifically about Eleanor, he described her as his conscience. Was it a convenient division of labor between FDR, the Machiavellian politician who nobody could read, nobody could really break through to? And Eleanor, who who wore her emotions and certainly her morality on her sleeve?
1: I, I do. I do. And, you know, and, and that's one of the things that, that brought Eleanor to the Pacific was her. she cared about people. And it wasn't abstract for her. She cared about people as individuals and how she could make life better for them. And that is one of the things that brought her to the Pacific. So for 10 years, she's been crisscrossing the country. She's been going to communities all over the place, asking people what they need, what they think. Um, and this was, so now she she did a, a previous trip the year before to Great Britain, same, same idea. She went to thank troops, um, you know, to in, inspect war work. But she's now going to um, the Pacific Theater where war has taken, Many, 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 many Americans, and she's going to go there, and she's going to see what conditions are like for them, what they need, and she's going to report back to that, to the home front, and the president.
0: FDR hasn't always got a good press, as certainly as a husband, but also as a family man. Uh, the the children, the, the Roosevelt children, haven't turned out perhaps ideally. Did Eleanor have any ambivalence about all this travel, given? the need still to be a mother. How old were the kids in the 1930s? And of course, early forties.
1: I think they were pretty, I I think the youngest was, was maybe uh, like a late teen. So
0: when when she left, would she leave the kids with nannies? With, Uh,
1: you know, I, I'm not really sure. Like I I said, I think, I think when FDR was elected in 1932, the oldest, uh, the oldest son was, you know, maybe a late teen. fast forward to 1943 and World War II, and all four of her sons are serving um, in various branches of the armed forces. Hmm. So again, this this, has been not abstract to her. Right.
0: So she was was joining it. It was the family business. We did a show last year with a novelist, Kristen Beck, who believes that World War II remains so seductive for novelists because it enabled them to write about pure good and evil. Was... Eleanor, did she see the war in, in those terms, particularly the war on uh, in the Pacific between the, the Japanese and the Americans?
1: Um, I don't think she saw it. I think she saw the actions of the Axis um, in terms of evil, for sure, um, in, in what they were doing. And, you know she didn't like the things that were associated with war that came along with it. She was devastated by the fact that, you know, old people always sent young people to die in war. They made the decisions and they sent the young to die in battle. And so she was very torn up about, um, about this young generation who otherwise would be living their lives um, dying on battle fronts.
0: One of the areas that she failed to break through with FDR on was race. She was certainly the conscience of uh, the administration when it came to racial injustice. FDR controversially never really went to war within his own party uh, for racial rights. We did a show with Matthew Delmont last year. He He's wrote and written an important book on... Um, The story of African Americans fighting in World War II, called "Half American." Of course, it was a very unjust story. How much uh, in the trip that Eleanor did, and the previous work she did in the war, did she address the inequalities, the racial inequalities in the in the American military?
1: she She did um, she absolutely did. Now, when she went to Great Britain the year before, the Secretary of War um, specifically asked FDR to tell Eleanor not to talk about race while she was abroad um, because they didn't want uh, people in the u s to know that um, black servicemen were were treated were treated well um, in Great Britain. So what
0: well, you mean I mean, wow, just just like anyone else respect yeah
1: this. sure. yeah. Just, just like anyone else, decently
0: and, rather than well. Sure, anyway. sure.
1: Yes, decently, and you know they they were particularly affronted, um, you know, if if women wanted to, you know, be seen in public with a black serviceman, you know, so um, they didn't they didn't want any of that, you know, being reported in the U.S. So she agrees um, on that trip. A year later, she goes to the Pacific, and she she addresses race. She is seen with, you know black troops she specifically you know makes sure that she she speaks with you know black newspaper reporters um, and she also addresses race in a speech um, that she gives before she leaves Australia and so you know she, she was also um, instrumental in in other ways as well um, she the 99th Pursuit Squadron um, was the first um all black unit of pilots and in the Army Air Forces, and they weren't sending them abroad. They weren't sending them to fight anywhere. And she admonished Secretary of War Stimson, and coincidence or not, a month later they were sent over to Europe and, and got and had a really great record of service.
0: So let's address This great journey she made, the First Lady of World War II, your new book, Eleanor Roosevelt's Daring Journey to the Front Lines and Back. You argue in the book, it was 1943, that the journey was not only important in its own right, but it was emblematic of her significance in history as the greatest American First Lady and as a champion of different progressive causes. Before we get to that, just give us some background on this trip uh in 1943 it was it was quite a risk wasn't it it was it was quite um a challenge in security terms i'm guessing
1: yes so at this point eleanor is an experienced traveler she knows how to do it she's done it before and but even for such an experienced traveler like eleanor this trip is further longer more arduous and more dangerous than anything she's done before and she knows it's going to tax her physically and mentally, and it does. And five weeks is a long time. I just right. to go
0: to the South Pacific. It's not like today where you can just jump on an airplane.
1: No, absolutely not. So she leaves from New York City, um, keeping it quiet. She does take a commercial flight across the country, but. Nobody's going to raise any eyebrows. She flies commercial flights all the time. She so just, she didn't, uh,
0: not like today, She there was no presidential aircraft. She had to fly on a regular plane.
1: She did. And there there was um, a government plane. It was called Guess Where Too? And they, it was originally thought that it would be for FDR, and they outfitted it, and um, it was a bomber converted into a transport, but it was ultimately deemed not safe enough. And... In that summer of 1943, she would not have used that plane anyway. But it was being used by five senators who were going around the world um, on their own trip, so they used the private government plane. Um, Eleanor, you know, using she would not have used it because it would have opened her up more for criticism because her travels were always being criticized. And Eleanor also enjoyed the camaraderie of of traveling with the public, of flying.
0: Was there and, any justification for that criticism or was it just the the ill will of of critics particularly within the republican party
1: you know Eleanor was criticized from day one for so many things and her she was the
0: hillary of her age yes
1: yeah, so yeah and and people just wanted to criticize and actually her travels was was one of the ways that um she she was you know considered a controversial first lady and yeah and i i mean I just think it was a, a a a way for them to to snipe and
0: gripe. Why was she so unpopular? Was it because she was independent? Was she perhaps a little arrogant, a little self-righteous? Or was it simply a reflection of the fact that people couldn't stand an uppity woman?
1: Um, well, you know, there there was a, um, a New York Times uh, Gallup poll. They reported on a Gallup poll when she returned from Great Britain in 1942, and they say that she probably garnered, you know, more praise and more criticism than you know any other, you know, first lady or you know a lot of a lot of um, women in American history. And so so, so camps were split. There were people who who very much admired what Eleanor was doing. And, yes, then there were people who maybe were, you know, Republicans and they wanted to snipe and gripe. Then there were traditionalists. Um, you know, one couple from Atlanta telegrammed, telegrammed the president to ask him to confine Eleanor to the White House.
0: Um, Could he have if he'd have chosen to? It's interesting that when the senators wanted to stop at talking about African-Americans, they had to ask FDR, were they all scared of her? Or would she simply not listen to, to, to a senator asking her for a favor?
1: Um, yeah, it was, it was Secretary of War Stimson. Um, I'm not sure whether she would have listened to him or not. Um, you know, she, like you, know, you said, alluded to this earlier, she, she did follow her, her heart and her conscience. But one of the things about FDR is that he supported what she was doing. He knew that Eleanor needed this on a personal level, Um, the travel, the independence, um, you know, the the tasks. And he also benefited from it. You know, he boasted in a cabinet meeting, my missus gets around a lot. And he was very, very proud of this, of the fact that she had this extraordinary ability to connect with people. So he both supported it and benefited from it.
0: And the contrast, of course, is vivid in in two contexts. Firstly, the moral contrast of, of, uh, of Eleanor wearing her conscience on her sleeve, but also the physical contrast. There was FDR, remarkable man, but imprisoned to his wheelchair, and Eleanor running around the world.
1: Right. Well, you know their their um, partnership in this regard actually started back when um, he was the governor of New York State, and you know they they would go visit facilities together, and he could go around the grounds, you know, driving. He sent her in to, you know, state hospitals, state prisons to inspect them and report back to him. Um, so that's just an earlier, um, you know, version of of what she she later did, you know, throughout her tenure as first lady, and and also in the Pacific.
0: But do you think it, uh, uh, FDR's uh, polio and his consequent disability did it make her? appreciate cherish celebrate her mobility even more
1: um you know i i didn't read anything where she specifically um you know said that um i i think that's entirely um plausible you know part of the reason that she was pleased for him when he became president is because she did say that she felt that it might in some way help make up for him being stricken with adult onset polio
0: yeah, it's interesting that we've had people on the show arguing that the polio experience was transformative for FDR in making him a little bit more realistic about himself and the world, giving him a little bit more empathy. He certainly wouldn't have been president without that experience, although who knows what he would have traded. Um, it was an incredible trip, as you say in the book, uh, Shannon. Uh, the Australian press called her Public Energy Number One. It was brave. It was incredible. You know, photos of her everywhere from uh, Bora Bora to the to the Christmas uh, to to Christmas Island. But did it actually accomplish anything? I mean, in in policy terms, would it have made it? Did it make any difference to the war effort? Had she not made this trip, presumably the narrative of the war would have been the same.
1: Well, one of the things that Eleanor hoped to do with this trip is she felt that in the summer of 1943, uh, you know, the war in Europe, the war in the Pacific, it's turning in the allies, tides are turning in the allies' favor. She feels that the home front is becoming dangerously complacent. You know, there's now strikes across the country at war production factories. Um, and so she felt that the nation is, is losing sight of the end goal. And victory is far from certain at this point. And she was very, very passionately advocating for servicemen. And one of the things that she doesn't want to have happen is for the home front to let up on its job because she wants to remind them that the only way that their servicemen are gonna come home is when the war is won. So she feels that they're becoming dangerously complacent. She is going to be this link between the fighting front and the home front. Um, part of the reason she's going is to thank U.S. troops on behalf of herself and for herself and on behalf of the president. Um, and in all, she addresses about 400,000 servicemen. And so it's it's also a morale boosting. Um, but did know, it make any
0: difference? I, I take your point, but did it make any difference? Did she actually build morale? Are you suggesting that American <laughs> troops would have fought more or less aggressively had she not shown up in the South um, Pacific?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I that's I, I, I don't know that that's entirely fair because, um, you know, there, there were a lot of servicemen. They felt distant from home, from family and even just seeing. Um, and, and it turns out they actually really miss their mom because what they're what they're super gratified to have is, you know, this this American mother figure in their midst. And the other reason that Eleanor's trip was successful and why she was uniquely suited to this is she didn't just go over there and, you know, and and that the trip happened in a vacuum. She has many, many outlets to report her findings to the American public she does her column, My Day, and she actually toted a manual typewriter with her to the South Pacific so that she could write her column and transmit um, the copy to her editor. So we have real-time reports from the First Lady of the United States who's in an active theater of war. And she also was using her various outlets, speeches, radio addresses, um, you know, magazine articles, my day, to address various things for servicemen. For example, um, advances in medicine meant that if you didn't die outright in battle, chances were you going to, you were going to survive. It also meant that there were going to be a lot of disabled servicemen coming back, and she was preparing the nation on, you know, preparing them for that and how to deal with that and how to deal with, the servicemen um, she brought her she used her public pressure to bear on congress um, to help pass legislation for returning servicemen because that's the number the number one thing um, that she heard from the servicemen while she was in the pacific was um, they were concerned about jobs having jobs when they got home and education and so she used her various platforms, her public pressure to, um, to help get that legislation passed and to encourage people to, um, you know, go to their representatives um, and make their wishes known. So she not only went on this, you know, morale building uh, mission, also an informal diplomatic mission to Australia and New Zealand and seeing the war work that women were doing there. She inspected Red Cross facilities in the region and she actually wore the Red Cross uniform the entire time she was there. Um, So she goes on this fact finding, you know, foray, morale boosting mission. And then she also has the the outlets to report her findings to the American public. And the other thing that she did was that- None of that
0: sounds, I I mean, I take your point. It's very interesting and and fun to write about, but none of it sounds particularly consequential.
1: Well, sure. I guess, you know, I guess to us in 2023, looking back- Well, no, I'm
0: talking about 1943. I'm (laughs) suggesting that she was a, a marginal figure within the administration. As you say, she alienated a lot of people. She didn't have a lot of, policy influence so she was a conscience without much policy heft is that fair or am I wrong am I being um incorrect?
1: you know I I think that um I think I convey pretty well in the book um how crucial her leadership was during World War II and you know I guess you can take from that what you want but this trip you know was absolutely a big deal and you know she was out there crusading for a better world. Her mission to the Pacific is also... Uh, yeah.
0: I mean, she's clearly a crusader. So, of course, FDR dies before the decision by uh, Harry Truman to drop a nuclear weapon, uh, an atomic bomb mm-hmm. or two on, 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 on Japan. What was... Once FDR left the stage, what was... She, she became in some ways more powerful. She was very much involved with the UN. What was her take on the dropping of the bombs? And and, and how was that connected, perhaps, with this 1943 trip?
1: Yeah, I mean, my avenue of research didn't really take me down um, the road of what she thought about the dropping of the atomic bomb. I can tell you that she did go to Japan um, after World War II, um, and either in the late 40s or early, I think it was, sometime in the later 40s, early 50s. Um, so, but the seeds of, of her later work with United Nations, um, human rights, the seeds of that can certainly uh, be seen in this trip because while she's in the Pacific, she's visiting, um, you know, allied nations, Australia and New Zealand, it's, her mission's two-pronged. We need to finish the war and she's reminding people of this and she's also now looking ahead to post-war. And how we can build, um, you know, better foundation to achieve peace and not go through this again.
0: Yeah, and Alita Black really focused on that in terms of my conversation mm-hmm. about her role in the United Nations. Uh, we had a uh, a, uh, a writer, Dan Hampton, on the show who argued that the world still owes America. A great debt for its participation in the second world war that's of course controversial eleanor died in 1962 she lived a long time after the war remarkable life on so many different fronts do you think the world owes america a debt for Ele- eleanor roosevelt and perhaps even for the trip that you you write about in this new book
1: you know i i think that they do i mean because you know, during World War II, she, she was a crucial figure in the United States and in the world. You know, her trips to Australia and New Zealand were, were very well celebrated. And a New Zealand newspaper, I'll have to paraphrase here, but um, they saw her as a crusader, you know, in the fight for the world's freedom. So she was very much recognized at the time on the world stage um, as as a piece of voice during World War II she was asked to give morale raising addresses to women in Brazil and France and, and other countries. So, so their, their respect for her was, was very great.
0: And finally, Shannon, what do you want people to take away from this new book? The first lady of World War II of clearly remarkable woman, remarkable trip. But if there's one thing about this daring journey to the front lines and back, what, 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 should people remember?
1: Um, I would like people to come away from this book with even greater admiration for Eleanor Roosevelt, for her courage, her compassion, her caring about people on an individual level, and her crusading for a better world. And a reporter at the time described the trip, and I believe this still stands, as the most remarkable journey any president's wife has ever made.